This morning we'll be looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. The Gospel of John, chapters 1, starting with verse 1. This is the inspired, authoritative, and inerrant Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as the Gospel of John puts the glory and majesty of your Son before us, I pray that we would have understanding and that with John we would see your glory as revealed in your word. May I speak truth, and may the Holy Spirit work through this message to cause us to grow in wisdom and to know joy in who Jesus is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning my desire is to focus our hearts and minds on the infinite glory and majesty of Jesus. Sometimes people talk about having favorite things, maybe a a favorite restaurant or a food, a color, maybe a favorite verse of scripture. And on hearing that kind of talk, I generally think about how I don't have favorite, uh, I don't have favorites of things other than my favorite child. I don't have a favorite verse per se, and I know that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. I know that there aren't good passages and bad passages. That said, I think this beginning in John is a wondrous passage that should move us to reverence and awe of who Jesus is and what he's done. If I had to pick a favorite, it would be hard to ignore this beginning of the uh, the Gospel of John. Alexander McLaren, a well-known and well-respected Baptist preacher who was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, said this about the opening of John 1. In it, the deep ocean of the divine nature is partially disclosed. Though no created eye can either plunge to discern its depths or travel beyond our horizon to its boundless, shoreless extent. The the Puritan divine John Arrowsmith called the opening of John's gospel a peal of thunder from the depths of eternity. And he wrote about the conversion of a man named Junius who eventually became a student of John Calvin's. And he wrote about 
uh, Aerosmith wrote about Junius that he was not able to stand before the force of this thunderclap. He himself telleth us that in his youth he was given to atheism and drowned in cursed principles. And the first thing that brought him to the knowledge of God was the beginning of this chapter of John. He cast his eyes upon these words, and he saw so much majesty therein, beyond all human rhetoric, that he was not himself of a long time after. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I've, I've broken up my message into three basic parts. The first is the question of Jesus. Who do people say that I am? Who is this man, Jesus? Next would be the answer of Jesus, who he actually is. And then I want to look at our response to Jesus. For the question of Jesus, I'm going to actually move outside of John for a bit. All four of the Gospels tell us about Jesus, and none of them is lacking, of course. To read any Gospel should be to know Jesus both as Son and as Savior, in his deity and his humanity. But they go about their task in slightly different ways. Matthew and Luke begin by telling us about Jesus' birth, Matthew starting first with a genealogy. Mark begins with John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. In these three Gospels, we see men looking for the Savior, some wondering if maybe John the Baptist was a Savior, men wondering who Jesus was. In our own day, people wonder about Jesus, some question, some doubt. Still others twist the Scriptures to make a God in their own image. Many around the world have just celebrated the birth of Christ while denying his deity. Some actually profess to believe in God and still deny his divinity. In John, we don't see the specific question, who do people say that I am? We do see uh, Pharisees and Levites coming to John the Baptist and asking, who are you? They're wondering about the Messiah. We see this in John's answer, John the Baptist's answer, I am not the Christ. But in each of these Gospels, we uh, see in, in the other Gospels, we see this question from Jesus. Who do people say that I am? And the people's answers varied. Some said John the Baptist, some said Elijah, and maybe others, other prophets that have come back from the dead. And these answers actually show a respectfulness, don't they, of who they thought Jesus might be. But the, question, the answers come from people who don't understand or comprehend the truth. And even if, they were, even if they were shown a risen Christ, they still wouldn't believe. They still would question his deity, wouldn't they? Because we've just seen that they think maybe, maybe he's a prophet come back from the dead. Also during the time of, of John's writing, there were, were heresies, those that were in, during his time denying the deity of Christ. I mentioned Aerosmith before, and he wrote about some of those people. He mentioned an Ebion and a Serinthus and other heretics who denied the deity of Jesus. So part of the context at the time of John's writing were these who denied his deity. And so John, at the very beginning of the gospel, writes with a profound and passionate clarity answering this question, who is this man? And we're going to look at John, four, uh, John uh, verse 14 in just a little bit, but I'll give you a sneak peek. It helps us to appreciate why John starts his gospel in the way that he does. He says, we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father. John saw the glory of Jesus. John was 
with Jesus. He saw many miracles. He saw the death and resurrection and ascension. And he was there at the transfiguration of Jesus. Imagine seeing the transfiguration of Jesus. You know, recall when Moses came down from the mountain after God had, in a veiled way, shown him his glory and his face was shining and the people were afraid and didn't want to come near. So in Matthew 17, 2, we read about the transfiguration and we read this. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And then in verse 5 it says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And in a, a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so John starts with this peal of thunder from the depths of eternity in answer to the question, Who is this man, Jesus? He doesn't start with genealogies, though that wouldn't be wrong. He doesn't start with the birth of a baby, though that wouldn't be wrong. But all the glory that John saw in Jesus, he now wants his readers to see and to know intimately as he did. He wants his readers to see that Jesus is God. His glory is unsurpassed. And that this very same God, the eternal creator of all things, took on flesh. Later in the book of John, he tells us why he's writing. He said, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20, 31. So John is writing so that unbelievers, seeing the infinite glory and majesty of Jesus, would come to faith. But this is also something that can strengthen and deepen our own faith. And I hope that this is what happens this morning as the Holy Spirit brings to bear these things again in our minds. So what's the answer to the, these questions? Who is this Jesus presented to us at the very beginning of John chapter 1? You know, when we read it, we might be surprised to see that there's any question at all, right? It, it seems very clear to us. But during the lifetime of John, as we've said, and in our own lifetimes as well, there are those who deny the humanity or the divinity of Jesus. But John doesn't let that be done with any integrity. You either have to deny the, the truth and in the inerrancy of Scripture completely, or you must profess the deity, majesty, and glory of Jesus. And this should bring us to worship. We've been presented right away with a profound and glorious statement of the deity of Jesus. So looking again at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. If Genesis 1-1 immediately comes to your mind, in the beginning God created... And you're thinking that, that John's beginning is that beginning, then you're on the right track. You're thinking just as John wants us to think. But men still twist John's meaning. Or maybe they just misunderstand the, the meaning of the word beginning. I could tell you about the beginning of a river, for example, and not be telling you what existed or if anything existed prior to the beginning of that river. Or what caused the river to begin things upon which the time of the beginning was contingent, or the where of the beginning was contingent. The word beginning is arche. In the Greek translation of Genesis 1.1, the Hebrew word for beginning is translated arche, just like we have in John. Now the word can mean something like the source, such as the beginning of a river. It can show authority 
or primacy of a thing or a person rather than it being a reference in time. But in our case, it doesn't mean source or authority. John is telling us about something he isn't telling us about something like the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's not telling us uh, about his authority or rule. He's clearly referencing John 1, in the beginning, God created. It's a reference to time before creation. Then we read that in the beginning was the word. The word was is a form of amy, meaning to be, I am, to exist. So before creation... The word existed. But here again, somebody might try to twist John's meaning. Some can something can exist as part of creation rather than uh, uh, existing before creation, obviously. You know, I could say that at the start of church, my coat was in the coat rack. But it, uh, so some people might say that the word was at the beginning, yes, but in the same way that other things were at the beginning that were created. Or they might say that first God created a very powerful being who then created given the power uh, given to him by, by the Father. But the form here uh, that, uh, for Amy is not Amy itself, but the imperfect tense of Amy, the word N, and it shows continuing action in the past. So we understand that the word was, not that it came to be. The word existed in eternity past, before creation, the word eternally existed. In the beginning was the word. It's a profound statement of the deity of Christ. But what about the word word, logos? It means a word that embodies an idea, a statement, a speech. When we speak, we make known our thoughts, our desires, our will. People learn who we are. This is what the word does when we speak. And in a similar way, the word of God is a manifestation or expression of God to those outside himself. Or as Hebrews 1.3 states, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The word logos to the Greeks was, a, was an impersonal concept, a principle that imposes form and reason on the world. It's an impersonal divine reason. To the Hebrews, logos was an expression of divine power. They saw it in, uh, at work in verses like Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. But John isn't saying that Jesus is merely divine reason, or merely the thoughts of God expressed, or merely the divine power of the Father. And we'll see this more clearly as we look at the second statement, of verse 1. And the word was with God. We see here that contrary to cults that deny the Trinity, Jesus is a distinct person. He's with the Father, a person that is with the Father. And there's more meaning to the word with than you might think, uh, that you might first understand. I could say, for example, that my son is in the other room with his brother. But if we looked in on them, maybe we'd see them both deep in their phones or on their computers. So they're with each other, but they're not with each other. You know, and similarly, I might say that I was with Brian somewhere. And that's, that's expressing a different uh, relationship than if I were to say to someone, oh, that's Brian over there, and that's Jill. They're with each other. And the person would understand they're an item, and there's something deeper there. John's meaning 
isn't merely that two beings are in the same place at the same time. He's, he's showing us a sense of relationship and communion. The word means to interface with, to move toward a goal or destination. There's a shared purpose in the Godhead. I like how the King James states the relationship a little bit further down in John 1.18. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. There's a close intimacy, a communion being expressed in the word with. Then John tells us the third expression, in the third expression, and the word was God. It can't get much clearer than that, can it? We certainly know the word was God. (laughs) Don't underestimate, though, the ability of men to not comprehend or their desire to fashion a God after their own making in trying to, to deny the Trinity of Jesus, uh, the divinity of Jesus, some have pointed out, even in our own day, that the phrase was God means that Jesus was a God, that he was God-like, not the God. And they want us to read John something like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a pretty powerful being. You know, why do they say this? They say it because there's no definite article, the, in front of God. He was with God. It doesn't say he was with the God. Um, So they say that Jesus wasn't the God, but a God. So what would you say to a Jehovah's Witness, for example, who would tell you, well, uh, we believe that Jesus was created and, and that he's a lesser, although very powerful, being. They're right, not about the, the, him being a lesser being, but they're right about the fact that there is no article before God. So, so what do we do with that? Well, we understand that the, in the Greek, the, a categorical statement like this doesn't require an article to have the meaning that John is giving it. And you could tell the Jehovah's Witness, look a little bit further down. Go to verse 6 for me, if you will. There was a man sent from God. The language is the same. There was a a man, it doesn't say there was a man that was sent from the God. It just says there was a man sent from God. So who sent? John the Baptist. The people who twist the meaning earlier here will say it correctly. That it says, the meaning is uh, the God. They don't say that a powerful being sent uh, sent John the Baptist. They say that the God sent John the Baptist. So they aren't consistent with their own position. The Father is God, and the Word, the Son, is God. In verse 2, John then re-emphasizes each point of verse 1. He wants to make doubly sure that we understand his point. It says he was in the beginning with God. Next, John gives us a glimpse into the unfathomable power of God the Son. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we see another statement of the deity of Jesus, his preexistence, his sovereign power in creating. Now earlier we saw John using that form of Amy, N, that indicated was the imperfect tense that indicated existence in the past that Jesus was eternal. Well here, unsurprisingly, there's a different word used for the existence of everything else. Instead of me, a word was used that means to come into being, to happen, to become. 
The use of these different words reinforces for us the idea of Jesus' deity, his existence in eternity past. Jesus was. Jesus is eternal, but his creation came into being. A more literal wording in English of all things were made through him would be all things through him came into being. They were not and now are. So we see the the creator-creature distinction very clearly in the deity of Jesus and his creation of all things. Is there there a greater example of the power of God than in in his creating all things out of nothing? But I think that maybe we can have a tendency to be numb to the, the power of creation and what God has done. Now, this is just my own supposition, but I think that perhaps it's because it's an event that happened outside of any frame of reference that we have. I can picture all the other great uh, works and miracles that Jesus did because it happened on an earth that's familiar to me. It happened in time and space, and I exist in time and space. But I can't picture nothing. You know, I can't picture a time before time itself was created. So perhaps, as, as amazing as those things are, maybe paradoxically, I can find it easy to say, well, yeah, he created everything, but maybe I can struggle with some lesser things. You know, maybe some of the miracles I might struggle with, or, or might, I might feel a little uncomfortable when someone else comes to me and says, this is what you believe? He fed how many with how little? Really? You, you believe that? You worship a God who's killed men, women, and children? Really? You believe that? We'll come back to that. His act of creation, I think, shows his power even more than the resurrection, as wonderful as that is for us, and as glorious as it is. It certainly does show, the resurrection does show, Jesus' mighty power. But men, again, believed in resurrection, even denying, though, the deity of Christ. For example, Lazarus rose from the grave under the power of God. Why can't Jesus have been risen that way? He may be a holy man, uh, uh, but, but raised like God raised Jesus, uh, uh, Lazarus. Remember, that's what they thought. But John doesn't allow anyone to diminish the glory of Jesus. Without him was not anything made that was made. He's the self-existent, He's made everything, and there's no room to deny his deity. Feeding 5,000 with two fish and just a little bit of bread? (laughs) That's nothing. Let me tell you about the time that he made all fish out of nothing, that he made everything out of nothing. Your God destroyed cities and everything in them, men, women, and children? He is God. He created everything. He owns everything everything. Our lives are in his hands. Yes. Praise God for his wonderful works. Then we read in verse, verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's interesting to note now in verse 4 that the life was the light of men. We're now back to the imperfect tense of Amy, the word en. So we saw a word indicating the eternal existence of Jesus. In the beginning was the word. Then we saw a word for existence that indicated 
that creation came into existence, and now this life that was in Christ is again the word for eternal existence. It's clear that life is in Jesus in a way that it isn't in his creation. Jesus is the source of all life. So in John verse 4, it's again saying that Jesus is eternally existent and that he's eternally the source of all life. In these few verses, 1 through 4, we see the unsurpassable glory, majesty, and power of Jesus. And then in verse 5, we see a transition into incarnation, God taking on flesh. Up until now, we've been reading about the relation of the word to the entire universe, and now we look at the relation to man. The light shines in darkness. This is gospel. This is a wondrous news. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or comprehended, as some translations have it. Apart from Jesus, there's only darkness. Men are lost, spiritually dead. Dead men can't comprehend the light. Then in verses 6 through 8, we read of a witness to the light, John the Baptist. Verse 7 says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. But in verse 10, we read that the Gentiles do not know him. In verse 11, we read his own people did not receive him. The result is the same. It's a sad result. The true light came, and men didn't comprehend it. So far, we've read of the glory of who Christ is and the good news of the light that shines in the darkness and the sad news of men not comprehending it. But then we read wonderful words in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then in verse 14, we read more wonderful words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John tells his readers that the eternally existing creator God is also uh, 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 God incarnate, Messiah, Savior, and those who believe become children of God. The one that was and was with God became flesh and dwelt among us. We see here yet another statement of the divinity of Jesus. Jesus wasn't created man. It says he became man. He took on flesh. The word became flesh. This is, this is unfathomable, isn't it? That the finite could house the infinite. C.S. Lewis has a line in one of his Narnia books where there's a character from earth who's making a reference to the incarnation to a character from another world. And he says, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. How can we comprehend this? To quote Lewis again, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. This is beyond my understanding. It's beyond my ability to communicate. The infinite glory, the infinite majesty, the infinite power and love of God is immeasurable. How great he is and how low our estate. Coming to my third point, what should our response be then to the one that John presents to us. In verse 14 again, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I've been talking a lot, or trying to emphasize a lot, this creator-creature distinction. I don't have the words to express it adequately. How do we understand this distinction between God and man? And, And learn then the joy that comes from seeing him as he is. Early on, I said that I think the glory that John mentions here is what what drove him to begin as he did. It gave him a passion to present to his readers the glory of God, the Son, right up front. This peal of thunder from the depths of eternity. And this is the focus I want to make clear this morning. I'd suggest that the beginning of John's gospel is doxology. We sing in one hymn, Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory in the highest to God. John has put before our eyes the manifest glory of Christ, the self-existent, eternal creator of all things. It is so good and so fitting to meditate on who Jesus is and also to reflect on who we are as his creation. The chasm, the, 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 the vast chasm between God and fallen man is infinite. How can we fully understand with our finite minds what that is? For that matter, the the distinction between God and redeemed man is difficult to fathom. Listen to Revelation 7, 11 through 12. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What was the response of John, Peter, and James to seeing the glory of Jesus at the transfiguration? We didn't go that far before in the verse. It says this, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. In Greek, there are two words the ESV uh, shows as terrified. One word is terrified, and the other modifies it, and it means greatly. They were greatly terrified, in case terrified wasn't enough to convey it. The King James says that they were sore afraid. These men were struck with the greatest awe and reverence that we could possibly imagine. And let's consider creation again. Why did God create? Colossians 1.16 tells us all things were created through him and for him. Consider the last two words. All things were created through him and for him. Proverbs 16.4 in the King James states it this way. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Greg Bonson put it this way. He said that creation was made by Jesus, or sorry, yes, made by Jesus for Jesus to glorify Jesus. God created because it pleased him to do so. Our purpose, the purpose of all creation is the praise and glory of God. We weren't created because God needed us or because we add something to him. We don't add glory to God. We can't. When we sing or we speak doxology to God, we're just make, uh, we're, we're making him, we're not making him to be something that he isn't already. We're simply bowing our hearts before him and professing what is. When my eyes are lifted up to him like this, 
and I see that vast chasm, I know that my created eyes can neither plunge to discern its depths or travel beyond our horizon to its boundless, shoreless extent. I see more and more clearly the distinction between the creator and me, the creature. In the triune God, we see intimate fellowship and unity of purpose. God isn't lacking. He's not lonely or bored such that he needs to create man for a companion. He was in the bosom of the Father. He was with God. If we lose sight of this, we would do well to look at Job again and God asking, where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. If we lose sight of this, we would do well to look at Romans again and hear, nay, but O man, who art thou that thou repliest against God? I'm afraid that we can run the risk of being so awestruck by what Jesus has done for us that we can be in danger of a self-centered focus. Over the course of my life, I've encountered many people who don't want to think much about God's holiness, his, his justice, his might, his sovereignty. I think they want something that makes them feel comfortable and makes them feel warm inside. Look at the baby in the manger. Isn't that sweet? I've encountered people who act as if our sin isn't as bad as it actually is. They don't want to hear too much of total depravity. I remember many years ago coming across a version of Amazing Grace that went this way. And I'm just going to read it, not sing it. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone like me. And I don't remember clearly anymore. It was very long ago. But I wouldn't doubt that I looked at my car stereo and said, wretch, wretch like me. Right? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I think, you know, don't think I've gone off into some ditch and strayed from the truth. We absolutely should be awestruck by what God has done for us. Absolutely. 1 Timothy 6.17 does tell us that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. James tells us that he gives us every good and perfect gift. Psalm 107 tells us that God is good. His love endures forever. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But if we don't understand as fully as we can who God is, then we really can't understand who we are and what he's actually done for us. We can't be truly, fully thankful. There are ditches on both sides of the road to avoid, but I want to suggest to you that the more we see of God's sovereign majesty and our humility, the greater will be our joy. Isn't this what we learn in Luke 7 with the sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet and the parable that Jesus told to Simon? Pastor just mentioned it a couple weeks ago in his message, and I'm stealing it for mine. Luke 7, starting in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, who, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Our case 
is one where we've rebelled against God. We've rebelled against the glory and majesty of God who in the beginning was and in the beginning created all things. How great and infinite is our debt. And in light of that, ponder these two things that John reveals to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this, all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus didn't forgive us 50 denarii. He didn't forgive us 500. Our debt was such that only the self-existing, eternal God taking on flesh could pay. The more we understand the height of God's glory and our low estate, the greater our joy. Only then can we begin to understand, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Only then can we begin to understand his great mercy, as 1 Peter 1.8 tells us, and know a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In closing, I want to look one more time at the transfiguration. We saw that John and Peter and James were terrified, utterly awestruck. And then in Matthew 17, 7, we read something about the transfiguration that should leave us awestruck and rejoicing. It's really a very, very simple statement. It's not hard to just read past it quickly and, and not understand the weight of what's before us. But I want to slow down this morning and appreciate it in the light of the glory and majesty of Jesus and in the wondrous reality of his incarnation. Matthew 17, 7 says this. But Jesus came and touched them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. The eternal God, God himself, came and he touched them and laid their fears aside. Let's close in prayer. Father, may these words from John cause your praises to be on our lips and in our hearts. As we read and meditate on your word, as we sit under faithful preaching, as we encourage one another in the faith, I pray that we would more and more grow in our understanding of your glory and majesty and that we would know a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In Jesus' name, amen.